0: Today, we're going to finish up our series on Design to Work. And we've been walking through this series now. This is week six, as I mentioned. And um, I, I pray that it's, it's been a sweet journey for you and re- reminded of, of why God created work, yeah, that it wasn't as a result of, of the fall and, and curse that fell upon humanity in this world, but it was something good that God created. In the very beginning, and that we should value work just as, as God did and does. Uh, we see that modeled in Genesis 1 and, and even continue throughout the scriptures that uh, God is a worker and He values work and He, he works ultimately to display His beauty and glory, um, and, and we see that. And He wants us to work to that same end uh, for His glory, um, that we are to be hard workers, uh, that we're to work unto the Lord, and we know that sin has come and made uh, our labor uh, a, very much a hard and painful toil, and we're going to read a, a little bit more about that this morning. Um, but uh, we want to see today that, that God, through our work, that that we are participating in the grace of God and His provision, and, and this is the means that that God provides through is through our Our work and our jobs that we have. And we've seen this from the very beginning. God as our provider. Uh, In Genesis chapter one, if you remember from the very beginning, God creates everything and He provides generously everything that Adam and Eve needs. He provides for them in great abundance there in the garden, and even specifically. Uh, chapter 1, he provided them animals and plants as, as food. And so we see that from the very beginning, that's who God is. He is our provider. Then when sin enters into humanity and the world and a curse falls on um, even work, even on our toil, um, it, it made it hard. It made it painful. And so much so that God uh, told Adam, by the sweat of your face, you will eat. But even in the midst of their failures, even in the midst of the separation that they had between themselves and God because of their sin, we see that the Lord graciously provides animal skins to clothe them. And we saw that a few weeks ago. So we continue to see the provision of God, His, His grace extended. Um, and we see it even with the Israelites in Exodus 16 and 17. If you remember, the Lord gave them manna from heaven. There it is on the ground in that morning. And then also he told Moses in Exodus 17 to hit this rock and water came out, right? And here you have water to drink. And then in Deuteronomy 8, 7 through 9, as the Lord takes the Israelites, he says, to this good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, a land of wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, you will not lack anything. God gives to them everything they need by his grace and then it continues as we move throughout the gospels we see Jesus teaching that living in God's kingdom means looking to God rather than human effort as the ultimate source of the things that we need for life and we see it with different examples but one that's familiar to us was the feeding of the the 5,000 and really more than that people where Jesus takes the the fish and the loaves and he multiplies it and we see this great beautiful example of the grace of God and his provision for the crowds. And then Matthew 6, and the Sermon of the Mound, you remember what Jesus says? He says, do not worry. Do not worry about what we will eat or what we will drink or the clothes that we need to put on. Instead, he uses the example of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And he says, if we will seek him first, all these things will be added unto us. He will provide. And so we see that God is provider. He provides, graciously He gives to us. And so when we think about work this morning, and we think about God as our provider, I want us to, to know that, that our labor is not optional, right? But it's neither uh, is it absolute uh, as well. Our labor is always our participation. I want us to see it as this, in the grace of God's provision. And so today, I want us to look at a familiar parable that Brendan just read for us. It's in Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at 25 through 37, this story that Jesus tells. And I want us to see here the encouragement to, one, continue to be hard workers. To be hard workers for the glory of God, who participate in the grace of God's provision with a heart of compassion instead of a heart of greed but a heart of compassion. And we see that in, in this beautiful story. And so what I'd like to do is give some context and then just give us really three points of direction in this parable. Uh, as we see, I, I believe one who worked hard. I, 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 we're going to see need, great, real need um, in the moment. And then also um, that c- what true compassion looks like and then it's costly, it's costly. But God has called us to that. And so if we could look at this story this morning, some context here to pick up what what Jesus is speaking about. In Luke chapter 10, 25 through 28, it says a lawyer, one who was an expert in the law, the Mosaic law, stood up and put Jesus to the test saying this, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so a big question that this lawyer asked here. What shall I do to inherit? inherit eternal life. And he said to him, Jesus did, what is written in the law and how does it read to you? So how would you summarize the law? How, how would how do you read the law? What does that mean to you? And so he throws it back at him and then Jesus or the uh, man comes back to Jesus and answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds to this man who has just answered Jesus with the idea of the great commandment in response to his question of what is written in the law and Jesus or the man says to Jesus or excuse me Jesus says to the man you have answered correctly do this and you will live Jesus says yes that is indeed the key to life it is to love God just as you have said, and, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. But we all fall short of that. We all fall short of loving God with our heart, soul, and mind, all that we are. We all fall short of loving our neighbor as we should. Treating others as yourself. We fall short of that. The Bible tells us that. That we all fall short of the standard and the glory of God. And so the lawyer responds to Jesus. And he asked him this. Wishing to justify himself, showing himself to be right or, or righteous. He said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So two big questions. How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus told them, here's the standard. You've got to live according to, yes, this law that you just said that summates the whole law. And we all fall short of that. We all do. But then he asked the question, the man does, who is my neighbor? This man wants to justify himself, make himself out to be righteous by this question. Because when it came to treating his people, and who were his people? They were the Jews. Well, he believed he loved them as his neighbor. But the man had this issue, just as other Jews did with Gentiles and anyone not a Jew. They especially hated a certain group. They hated Samaritans. Those who were half Jews, those who were half Gentiles. So the man is, is really setting up a distinction here between who are neighbors and who are non neighbors. So going back to what he set up in verse 27, that I am to love my neighbor as myself, he wants to put a distinction here. Who's my neighbor? Meaning, who am I to love and who do I not have to love? And so he's setting up, trying to get Jesus to. In a trap, trying to justify himself, who am I to love? And A neighbor means one who is near, means a person with whom one has something to do with. And so the Jews translated the word in a limited sense to mean a fellow Jew or someone in the same religious community, and specifically, it excluded foreigners and Samaritans, namely. And so Jesus is going to respond to this. He's going to respond to this. By telling a story, a parable, one that we're familiar with called the Good Samaritan. This story is compelling. It's so compelling that it is popular far beyond Christian circles. Where people respond to the idea of the Good Samaritan, someone who takes care of a stranger in need. This parable is known. And so Jesus shares with this man because he wants to address his heart. See, this, this man has a heart issue. He, he lacks love for all. See, his, his love is very much got prejudice about it. He only loves certain people or only feels responsible to love certain people. And so Jesus shares this story. And so what I want us to see at the heart of the story today that he's going to share, because we've, we've seen this parable before, especially when we walk through the gospel of Luke. But I want us to see it as we focus on this Samaritan, right, and the help that he is can provide. And so we want to look at him and we want to look at his heart and the need that he meets this morning and how literally this is a man who, because of his work, the work that he does, he's participating in the grace of God's provision. And I want us to see how he does that and see our work as the same. And so look at Jesus' response in verse 30. He replied and said to this man who just asked this question, a man was going down from Jerusalem. Now, this this man that was going down from Jerusalem in this story is, is, uh, is to be a Jew, all right? That that was something that was just known. This As Jesus is sharing this story, this is a Jew. Okay, This is a Jew who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, they went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on the road. And so this was a religious guy. This was a religious leader. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also. So another religious guy right? These guys get it. They, they are called to help people in need, right? Well, look what this guy does. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, remember the strife, the enmity, the hate between Jews and Samaritans. So here you have this Jew, right, lying on the ground, naked, Bloody, with nothing. Half dead. And a Samaritan walks up to him. The religious crew passes by. The Samaritan walks up. He was on a journey, it tells us in verse 33. He came upon him. When he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him. He bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil, wine on them. And he put him on his own beast. And brought him to an inn to take care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. You see, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho here was a well-known trading route. It's about a 17-mile stretch of desert road. It was well-traveled, but it was also dangerous. There were many robbers on that because there were many people that would use it uh, to travel through for, for work and, and to do business. And so the Samaritan probably traveled the, the trade route often. And, and my wife, we, uh, why might we say that? I think there's evidence here of the fact that he was known, most likely. Uh, remember, this is a story, so we're interpreting that. But it seems in the story that he could be known by who? If you look at verse 35, the innkeeper, right? As he says to the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. And So so this guy took this route, it seems, because he's going to return. He's going to come back that way. And and to have the trust and and to have this credit with the innkeeper, right? It seems this guy was, was probably known. So he probably took this route, often for business, for, for work. Um, he was successful enough, not only that, to be able to afford the oil and the wine that was on him for these medical purposes. And not only that, but for the lodging at the inn. And so when we see this parable today that Jesus shares, I, I want us to see this Samaritan man that, that he is speaking of here a, as one who was a successful businessman. He, he was a hard worker. He seems to be, and Scripture encourages us to that end, and we've seen it over the last few weeks, that we are to be those who, who work hard. Um, there's a, a commercial uh, that's got the advertising line, um, and, and it, uh, it says, we work hard so you don't have to. Can, can anyone tell me what product that is? We work hard so you don't have to. Say it again? Avis. I don't know if that is Avis, Brad, but let's check. Let's think a little. Let's let's think of the bathroom this morning. Can we just think of the bathroom? Let's think down to a product in the bathroom. We work harder, so you don't have to. It's not it's not any toilet paper, right? That's bad. Scrubbing bubbles, yeah. There oh, you go, heard that. Yeah, tile clear. You guys are like, wait a second. That's good. Yeah, scrubbing bubbles, right? But their, their slogan, right, their, their advertising line is, we work hard so you don't have to, all right? With a little adjustment, it might have fit well with some Christians back in Paul's day, right? In the church of Thessalonican, um. Paul had to address Christians because of their failure to work and to work hard, right? And, and maybe their slogan was kind of like this Jesus worked hard, so I don't have to. Kind of some, some thought. And there was some other thinking that they had in mind, whether it be laziness, whether it be, well, well Jesus is returning soon, and so I'll just wait till he returns and freeloaded, right? I mean, there was just different thoughts. And so how did Paul address this? And I want us to see this because I think there's a basic encouragement here, a basic truth that we're called to as Christians, as the church, as part of our model and our example. And Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. He says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly Life, Not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. So Paul is saying, um, follow the example that them as church leaders are showing. And he says, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because... We do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer yourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Listen to what he says here. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. It's a basic truth, right? If you want to eat, work, is what Paul is saying. And we are to model that. For we hear, he says, that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. And Paul says, do not grow weary of doing good. We're to be hard workers. And God, by his grace, through our labor, we participate in him providing for us, but, but it's through what? Through through work, Paul says, that our basic needs are met by receiving food to eat. And so we must work to eat. Proverbs 14, 23 says, In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. To Poverty. One of the things I, I see, especially, um, and, and I probably did this as well, when I was in high school and, and, you know, what happens is when you start getting to that that age where you start wanting to work or, or go get a job or whatever, what I see a lot of times with with high school students and sometimes even with college students, hopefully not that, that old, but what they start doing is they start talking about jobs they're going to have and, and work they're going to do, but they just talk about it, right? Have you ever met someone that just talks about it? But, but It's one thing to talk about, work. It's another one to have a job and do work, right? And so we've got to encourage that, right? We're going to encourage as parents to younger generation, the kids we're raising, but also this goes for us as well. We've got to remember in all labor there is profit, but we can't just merely talk because that leads to poverty, poverty. And so we work to make a profit. To provide for ourselves by the grace of God. It's him providing. Every time we get a paycheck, yes, it says whatever company you work for, but it is from the Lord. It is God's provision. It is his grace. To provide for our basic needs, as Paul says, so we may eat, but also for our family, for relatives, those we're raising. First um, Timothy 5 eight, Paul addresses this. He says, if anyone does not provide for his own, And especially for his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul cited this commonly recognized responsibility to encourage the relatives of widows. That's the context of what he's talking about here, to um, maintain them, to help them. And so family members have a universal recognized duty to care for one another. Even unbelievers acknowledge this, Paul says. And if a Christian fails here... He behaves contrary to the teaching of his faith and is worse, what Paul says, than the typical unbeliever who even is aware and helps his needy relatives. You remember Jesus on the cross? I mean, He even made provision for his mom from the cross that she would be cared for even as he hung there to die. So we're to work to provide. Our basic needs, yes, but for our family, for our relatives, those uh, that we have, whether it's widows in our families, we're to care for them. So God has given us work that through our hard work, he would provide for these needs. But not only just these needs, but for the needs of others as well. You see, this good Samaritan in this story was a hard worker. He was a, a businessman. And one day, he, he walks on this road, a road that he probably took often, And he encounters this real need. And look at this real need. It, it says again, verse 30, to, to reenter the story, listen to what it says. A man, this Jew, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. So he encountered these robbers. It was a dangerous road. And it says they stripped him. So he was left there with, with no clothes whatsoever. They beat him. Uh, Literally what that means is is they laid blows upon him. And so he needed medical attention. He he was hurting. He was in pain. Not only that, it says um, they went away leaving him half dead, almost dead. And then you see the priest and the Levite passing by. And so this guy is rejected even by his own, even by his own not even willing to care for him or help him the ones who should have stopped above all failed to stop and so here is this guy without clothes in pain almost dead rejected no one knows how long he he was there that day in real need and Zechariah Chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. Listen to what the Lord encourages us. The Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice, practice kindness and compassion to each of his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. There are needs. There are needs all around us. There may be those that we know. In our sphere of influence, circles we hang out with, places of work even, people maybe who struggle with putting food on the table. And at 9 a.m., one of our ladies here at the church who's a a teacher just just sees real need every day, every day, during the school year especially, of of kids who who struggle, who, who maybe come to school with the same clothes on, days in a row, and so there's those who struggle to make their bills. There may be those at your place of work that you maybe have a chance to be a neighbor to, coworkers, customers, uh, others, even across ethnic and, and cultural divides, just as we see happening in this story, to where you can be a good Samaritan. And how might that look? How might that look even in your place of work? where you could help cultivate a, um, an awareness, that, that you would have an awareness of those you work with or around you to help break the divide between um, maybe upper management and those workers down here. That maybe you could be aware of those who maybe are being robbed in some way in the workplace. And what I mean by that is maybe those who are mistreated. Maybe it's different ethnic groups. Maybe they're deprived of recognition or promotion or whatever it may be. Someone who's just being overlooked. But you could be that one who maybe speaks up. As Christians, I believe that we've got to be those who are willing to say, hey, listen, this person isn't getting a fair shake. I was meeting with a guy this week. And we were talking about his job, and he works in HR. And I love what he shared with me. Loved it. And this is just real practical, real practical stuff. And, and I think this is how we live out the gospel in our places of work. And he was telling me in, in his role that there are certain standards and certain ways you've got to work according to the company line, right? Especially in HR. And so a gentleman had come to him about insurance. Um, and he he has insurance through the company. And if he used the insurance of the company, he he would just have to pay a certain deductible, which would be very minute and small. But if he went through Medicare, he would have to, according to this procedure that he had done, he'd have to write um, a, a check up front that was fairly large and wait to be reimbursed based on how this was structured. And so... This gentleman, according to the HR guidelines, he, he knew if the company was aware of this, that they would want him to go the latter route and write a big chunk and wait to be in reimbursed, which would take a while. And I love what this guy did. This guy said, hey, listen, I just realized, you know what, this, this man could not do that. And he directed me, say, Listen, you, you've got insurance through this company, which is right and good. Use that. Even though you know that, hey. They're going to probably push you this direction. You need to go this way. And I, I loved just the heart of this guy. He said, listen, you know, part of my role is, is to look out for people, to care for people, um, and, and not just um, what companies may push. I'm looking for the well-being of people and just trying to change that culture. And I love that heart because what this guy was saying is I, I care for this guy. And I want to look out for him. And I thought this was just a practical way of directing this guy toward caring for him. And there are many different ways that we can practice that in the workplace. And there's needs around us, many needs around us, not only in the workplace but beyond that and families and beyond that we will encounter. And so look at how this guy responds to these real needs. Look at his compassion. In verse 33 It says, The Samaritan was on a journey. He came upon him. He came upon him. And... It says, when he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him. He bandaged him up. We read this already, but I want you to see how he cares for him. He poured wo- oil and wine on the, the wounds. He put him on his own beast. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. On the next day, he took, care, uh, he took out two denarii. By the way, two denarii um, w- would have been two days' wages this guy uh, takes out. And he gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever More you spend when I return, I will uh, repay you. And so, what do we see here? In this parable of the Good Samaritan, um, it can thus be interpreted as a story about using our material success, that which God blesses us with, to benefit others. And so, here we see this one who's the hero of the parable, and he spends his money on this stranger without any direct obligation to do so. He doesn't know this guy. In fact, there's great hate between these different groups. Remember, he's a Samaritan. This gentleman is a Jew. They're not related by kinship, by faith, by by anything of the such. And yet, in Jesus' mind as he's telling this story, to love God is to make anyone, anyone who needs our help into our Neighbor, And so Jesus in this story emphasizes this point by reversing the thrust of the lawyer's original question. Remember what it was? Who is my neighbor? And if you think about that question, it begins with what? The self. Who is my neighbor? What's my responsibility? And then ask who the self is obligated to? To aid, who am I to help? Who's my neighbor? But Jesus reverses the question. Look, at, look what he does here. If you look at verse 36, which of these three, as he thinks about the priest and the Levite, now the Samaritan, which of these three do you think prove to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Where does this question center? It's different from the lawyer's question. This centers on the man in need. As he says, which of these three was a neighbor to the man? The man is central here, rather than ourselves. So let me ask you this. If we begin by thinking of the person or people in need rather than ourselves, does that give us a different perspective on whether God calls us to help? It doesn't mean we are called to absolute, infinite availability to all the needs, obviously, in the world. No one's called to meet all those. It's beyond our capability. But the Samaritan here, as we look at this, doesn't quit his job, right, to go searching for every injured traveler in the Roman Empire after this, right? But when he crosses paths, literally, with someone who needs the help he can give, what we see right here is he takes action. He takes action. He was the least likely of these three travelers to offer help, yet he did so. He was different than the religious guys as he felt compassion for the man who was beaten, who was left for dead. And so what do we see here? We see in this story, we see compassion, right? And look at verse 33 specifically. And What does it say? It says, he came upon him. He came to him. I think there's six acts of compassion here. First, he came to him. That's movement toward a need. Sympathy walks by and just says, "Oh man, that's horrible. That's that's rough." I feel sorry for that person, right? But but here we see compassion. It acts. It comes to the man who's in need. And then it says, when he saw his, or excuse me, when he saw me, felt compassionate, he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds. That's the second thing. He bandaged up his wounds. He took care of his wounds, his, his needs there. And the third thing, he pours oil and wine on them. So oil was to soothe the victim's wounds, and wine was to disinfect those wounds. And then fourth, he put him on his own beast. He gave him transportation. And then the fifth thing we see here, he brought him to an end to take care of him. He gave him a place to rest in, to recover in. And, and then on the next day, he took out the money. He gives it to the innkeeper, and he says, hey, listen, use this. And then if you spend more, I'll repay you. See, true compassion will cost. It will cost. And we are called to have such compassion towards such needs and to provide for others. Ephesians 4.28, Paul addressed this. He says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. You see, compassion cost the Samaritan. He put his business on hold specifically on this day, to see to the need of this complete stranger. His plans were disrupted. He he was willing to let the calendar be disrupted. Not only that, it takes time. took part of this day. He stays with him that night, gets up with him the next morning. It it takes time. He was going to go back by, right, whether the man was going to be there or not, but he was going to go back by the inn to help take care of any expenses. So that took time. And thirdly, it cost him financially as well. It cost him money. You see, what we see here is an example of Jesus in Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Do you remember what Paul says? Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul encourages us with that example in mind. In verse 7 of chapter 9, that same book, he says, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You see, we're to work hard. God's given us our labor, our our jobs. By his grace. And as we're working, we're participating, literally, in the grace of God's provision. Him providing for our basic needs, yes, and for us to care for our families. But even beyond that, that we would care for the needs of others. The ones that we pass along the road, in our places of work, and you name it and beyond. And that we, as God directs us in our hearts, would be those cheerful givers to help meet Needs. And so he says to this man on this day, this man who was trying to justify himself, Jesus tells him this. He asks him, Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the man says back to him, The one who showed mercy toward. And Jesus says, go and do the same. We're to go and do the same as the Samaritan. He is the example. He's the example of one who worked hard, who participated in God's grace, God's provision. God is gracious to us. He wants us to have a compassionate heart, not a heart of greed, but a heart of compassion. So as we see our work, may we see it like that, that we're participating in the grace of God's provision and God is providing through that. As we close today, I I do want us to realize this though, that ultimately our greatest need, right, is not a paycheck. Ultimately our greatest need is not financially. Our greatest need is Is more of Jesus. That's our greatest need. That is our greatest need above all. And we think about what God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, rich at the glory of heaven, was willing to become poor on our behalf so that we could be made spiritually rich and full in him, that we could have eternal life. That's what Jesus did for us. And we need more of him, more of him. So today, as you are here, um, I want to ask you just a simple question. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Are you in a trusting relationship with Jesus Christ? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Today, if he is not, I I pray that you would see our God as a gracious God who has provided much provided food. He's provided clothes. He's provided a roof over your head. He's provided a lot, generously, abundantly. But above all, what Jesus has done, what God has done through Jesus, is he's met your greatest need. You see, this lawyer on this day had a great need, and he was trying to fulfill it through doing good, through living according to the law. At the end of the day, our good works, our good deeds, trying to climb that ladder of trying just to do good enough or maybe not to be bad or to do bad enough so that we can receive eternal life. That, that is not the gospel. That won't cut it. We all fall short. But God, by his grace, loved us. He gave us Jesus. And if we would simply throw ourselves, surrender our lives for Jesus Christ. Believe in him. The Bible says we will be saved and he will grant to us the free gift of eternal life. That is what God has provided ultimately for us by his grace. And I pray today you would recognize we need more of him. We need more of him. We need more of him. Let's pray.